Well, good night, ladies and gentlemen. That was that was enthusiasm for you there. How many votes was your majority, Michael? Oh, um, so in terms of votes cast, I believe the Labour Party candidates, including myself, we amassed about 70% of the vote. Um, so I my number was... I believe my exact vote count for me was 1,788 votes. I came second, and the top three candidates were elected. All three were Labour, and I came second to my other ward colleague, Jill Manley, who came first with 1,800-something votes. I don't have the figures right in front of me, but I can remember off the top of my head, I got 1,788 votes. Very nice. And how are you finding your first month as a councillor? Very full on. Very full on. Um, so the first month is kind of an induction. You do a lot of training. Um, and so there's plenty of meetings, plenty of training. And you're also having to juggle the meetings and the training with the casework as it starts to come in, the site visits you're requested to go on. And in my case, and in my fellow war colleague Azama's case we both work full-time so we're juggling a full-time job with what at the moment also feels like a full-time job so two full-time jobs um so it is very full-on I'm for the most part I'm really enjoying it but some days are more stressful than others understandably so I think I mean you, you you will you will not see this good audience Michael is looking a little bit sleepy um, I, I thought I was sleepy when I came on to the uh, onto the podcast this evening, but uh, Councillor Butcher has been really burning the candle at both ends. Now, we've for our I think banned from using the word agenda because Michael finds that triggering for the order of business this evening. Um, just going to have a quick rundown of election day. So this is an event I was actually present for. So how are you, how are you feeling on election day? Were, were you confident? I, I was pretty confident when I was with you on the doorstep that you had probably secured enough votes for victory. For from my own perspective, um, I was I was fairly confident in Cricket Green. I say fairly confident. I was very confident I would be elected in Cricket Green. Um, I was fairly confident it was going to be a good night for the Labour Party across the country. Um, I'd done a bit of campaigning in Wandsworth a couple of days before the election. And what I heard on the ground there from fellow activists was things were looking good there. Um, So I thought it was going to be a good night for Labour. If I had any sort of apprehension, um, because Alex and I spent election day in Lower Morden, which is the most marginal ward in the Mitchum and Morden constituency. Most marginal ward, but our reception on the doorstep was overwhelmingly very, very positive. We only had two angry people who shouted at us out of many, many doors that we knocked on that day. And of course, we ended the day um, in the greatest restaurant in South London, Wimpy. Um, Yeah, Morden, one of the few, one of the homes left to the last few Wimpy. Well, when Michael sees his power, there will be a Wimpy bar on every street. And be supporting British fast food. But uh, I suppose the big question mark over Merton as a whole was 
I thought that the Tories were in trouble on the day because I had actually, I did some campaigning in Wimbledon in the morning before heading to Lower Morden in the afternoon. And the Lib Dems were out in force. And at the time, the majority of seats in Wimbledon were held by the Tories. And I thought, the Lib Dems are coming for you. This is going to be a really difficult night for you there. And my real question was just, with with this sort of freeway split, as I've talked about before, in the South Wimbledon area between Labour, the Lib Dems and the Tories, what is the makeup of the council going to look like? I was fair, I was pretty damn sure that Labour would be the largest group. I was... I don't want to say positive, but I suspected that Labour would hold on to its majority. But the real question in my mind is just how big is our majority on the council going to be? Obviously, the number of seats on the council was reduced from 2018. So the real question was, how big is the Labour majority going to be? I didn't really think too much of the question of will Labour have a majority? I thought the most likely outcome is we will have one. The is question it going to have a big majority, a monster majority? Yeah, and just with, the, just with the freeway split uh, in the South Wimbledon area, it was so hard to predict. Um, I, I remember saying to you on the day, Alex, I think that the Lib Dems may well overtake the Tories tonight. They may edge it. And boy, was that an understatement, as it would turn out to be. Um, but on the day, we were knocking on doors with colleagues. We were getting a positive reception. Yeah, very, very positive reception. Um, there, there seemed to be a lot of enthusiasm. Um, turnout was not brilliant in cricket green, actually. But overall, um, turnout was generally up on what we normally see in uh, in local elections. Merton as a whole, turnout was up. Um, turnout was slightly down in a few of the Mitchum and Malden wards compared to 2018. Um, I don't know whether it's just people complacency I think is a factor I think a lot of people just assume Labour's going to win in the Mitchum and Morden area and so they either forget or don't bother to vote um, but the reception we got on the doorstep there was always great so I don't know Yeah, and like I said, only two shouty people, and only one of those was particularly hilarious. The other one was just angry. Okay, so just moving on slightly, um, experience of the count. How were you feeling on the evening? So we were actually doing um, a little bit of vote tallying that night. So we were loitering around the um, ballot boxes as they were open and doing sort of rough tallies as quick as you can do really in, in those situations to work out and, unless you're um kind of super duperty quick you can't get an exact tally but you can get a very general idea of where the vote is going and we, we realized very quickly that it was not going very well for the conservative party and they 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 knew it when <laughs> you were there i mean our where we were when it came to sort of just all it is, is you just get a rough gauge of where the votes are coming in from sort of seeing where the, the tellers pile them up on the table. So you get a Labour pile, a Conservative pile, a Lib Dem pile, 
and then a mixed path to anyone who split their ballot paper. Obviously, in a lot of wards, you get free votes, and a lot of people choose to split their votes between different parties. Um, but you do see piles stack up for Labour, for the Tories, for the Lib Dems, etc. Um, and it became very clear to Alex and I, quite quickly, that the Labour vote in nearly all of Mitcham and Morden was holding up very well. The only question mark um, would come with Lower Morden, where we had been campaigning that day, where we turned out our vote quite efficiently. As we said, the reception was good on the doorstep from us. The Labour voters were turning out. But the other side of the story is the Tories also turned out their vote quite well. And that was reflected as the vote stacked up in Lower Morden. It was very tight. That was the one everyone was watching. We did a bit of tallying over there. Um, other people came in and took over, but all the all the election officials, all the volunteers, they were keeping an eye on Lower Morden, and it was getting very, very tense because when you get to that point in the night and an election count, and all the attention switches over to a single seat like that, it's a horrible experience for the vote counters. So that's that's something that I have done in the past because yeah there's to a certain extent there's a little bit of generosity if it's obvious that the vote is going is definitively going one particular way so if for example you get a ballot paper that has is expressing a clear preference for voting for the conservatives for example you might someone might have accidentally drawn a circle around the candidates they wanted to vote for rather than a cross or something. If it's obvious that another party is going to win that seat, then normally the official will show that ballot paper to various election officials and volunteers, and there will some consensus will emerge that that is a clear preference, and obviously the official makes the final decision there. When it's going down to the wire, and it's going to be a very, very tight vote, at that point the arguments begin to break out about what is a valid vote and what should be counted. Then you go into recount land, you go into second recount, third recount sometimes. Um, yeah. I, 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 unfortunately, I had to leave the account at about half past one in the morning. Um, there was no sign of that seat being called at that point. Oh, what no. Uh, that went to three recounts, I believe, in total, including a recount the next day to confirm the final result. Um, so, uh, Alex and I were there when an argument did, in fact, break out. Uh, one of the Conservative agents, I believe, um, got quite annoyed because the votes were being counted on two different tables and one of them he couldn't see. And he insisted that he be able to see all the votes being counted in front of him, which was completely his right. Um, but he did get quite angry towards the officials, which, you know, it's a, it's a long night. Emotions do run high, but the sort of anger was a bit unnecessary, even though he was well within his right to ask for it. Um, yeah. So for, for election volunteers who work for the different parties, there are some rights that they have. There are some areas where the actual counting staff will allow them a little bit of leeway. Um, it's kind of under their prerogative to operate within the rules. And obviously there are many things that they can't do. So technically speaking, tallying votes is frowned upon 
but within the rules. But it's something that's tolerated because everyone fucking does it. Um, no, it would be incredibly hypocritical for any part, any one party, to criticise another one for doing vote tallies. Because no comment. Yeah, you you would not you would not have a leg to stand on because the, another party could just shoot back at you with umpteen different examples. So it's it's something that is never challenged. So it's it's generally accepted, but I believe a count official could tell you to take a step back and sort of back off if they wanted to. Um, if you are there as, as an observer of the election working for a particular party um, and you watch votes being tallied, you have the right to um, ask them to count a stack of ballot papers again. You can ask them to stop and you can peer over. Uh, it can get very awkward for them because uh, you can get, in theory, you can get as close as is physically possible without touching them. Um, although, to be fair, most the vast majority of people are very, very, um, very, very good and very, very reasonable. And I think everyone accepts that this is this is the price of a healthy democracy that kind of... I love democracy. Ha- I love the Republic. I love observing how votes are counted. One for me, two for me. Oh, that's invalid. Yeah, so it, it's 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 very important, and obviously the real reason that the volunteers, the official reason the volunteers working for the different parties are there are to observe the fact the event, the election has been conducted fairly. In practice, though, as I say, the joint most important reason is that they are there is to get some idea as to who has won. So this this is why when you watch news nights or your evening news program of choice on the evening of an election and you will get sort of MP Greg stab shot of West Brockinghamshire and it's not been called yet whether Greg has won that seat but Greg will be able to say like well it's not looking good for us tonight the observations we have made are deeply troubling so Greg knows that because all his volunteers have been keeping a very beady eye on the counts to, to make sure um, they know what's going on. For example, in uh, North Shropshire, in the North Shropshire by-election, that's how the Lib Dems knew very early on that they were going to win the seat, simply by looking at the stacks of votes as they came in. The Lib Dems knew they were going to win that handsomely and why they felt comfortable at 11pm well before the result was called saying they were going to win because they could well, see the way the votes yes. were stacking up. The Lib Dems were able to go to bed with their yellow hot water bottles and wake up refreshed in the morning knowing that they would likely have good news. My, my most, well, I think one of the most interesting examples of this happening, and this is one that I've talked about before, so forgive me, Michael, is during the 2014 uh, Scottish independence referendum when... The Scottish Tory leader at the time, Ruth Davidson, did something that was perhaps immoral, but not illegal, and sort of perhaps used the information that she had to her advantage. So Ruth went on, I can't remember in particular which programme it was, it might have been Andrew Neil or... um, Andrew Marr, because at that time all the 
BBC uh, presenters were Scotsman called Andrew. And she essentially said that the tallies they had been taking of postal votes that had been opened indicated that no had won. Now, this set off a lot of alarm bells among nationalists that the Scottish Conservatives had been opening postal ballots in collaboration with election officials and potentially tampering with the result or just spying on the result. Now, it sounded very dodgy from the way Ruth Davidson phrased that. What she was actually doing, as I say, perfectly legal, the way she used that information may have been somewhat immoral because obviously at that particular vote, the postal votes were counted before the, or rather the postal, no, they were not counted, but they were um, validated before the main vote was counted. So the ballots were opened up and officials from different parties were there and they could get some idea of um, how the country was voting as a whole. Now, the postal votes at the Scottish independence referendum were somewhat more heavily skewed towards no than the national result because it was far more likely that postal votes are used by uh, the elderly. Older voters. older voters who tend to, as a general rule, be um, more conservative. But the statistics that the yes campaign, sorry, the, the, statistics, the, the no campaign were able to gather on the status of the yes campaign during those validations when the ballot papers were opened enabled Ruth Davison to go on television and say, it's looking good, I think we've won. Now, to what extent that influenced the vote on the day, I think is highly debatable. Um, but you're not whether, supposed to talk about the result before the final votes so, have been cast. So you're, you're not supposed to talk about it, but because... Because obviously on the actual day of an election, in the news cycle, you're not allowed to talk about the election. You're not allowed to try to influence the election in any way. That's why the only things you get on the news that day are pictures of politicians going to vote. They can't actually give any analysis of the election in case of influencing it. Or dogs. So oh, Ruth, dogs. Ruth, Davidson, Ruth Davidson did a very sneaky thing where she used the information that she had in between the postal votes being validated and the final polling day. Now, whether that was a cock-up on her part and it was something that slipped out or whether it was something that was deliberately planned to um, influence the election is legally irrelevant because I would argue what she did was immoral, whether it was by accident or not. However, it was just within the rules that when she was investigated, it was not not something that Police Scotland chose to... Um, well, they, they Police Scotland declared that there was no case against what the No campaign had done because it was within reasonable... Uh, within the reasonable parameters of what's accepted in a British election. Just. Just. But it's, it was quite an interesting vote because you wouldn't normally have that amount of time between one lot of votes being validated and actual polling day. So it's very, very rare in a British election for votes to be sitting around for that long, hmm. waiting for more votes to come in. There are certainly exceptions to that, 
So, for example, everyone's favourite general election, 1945, the result was delayed for several months while votes came in from overseas. So oh, that, yeah. was an, that, that was an absolute logistical nightmare. Um, it, was, it was amazing because you had to calculate in 1945, you had to put every soldier with his individual constituency. So you had to be able to validate his home address, even though he was voting from overseas. Fucking logistical nightmare. Yeah. And now, amazingly, it was the soldiers that had swung it for Labour by by a landslide. Um, people at home tended to vote more conservative, but the actual boys who had been doing the fighting on the field voted for, voted for Labour. I mean, 1945 is an interesting discussion potentially for a future podcast because it was a very early example of pollsters getting it very right and the news media not believing what, what the, the news media not believing what the polls were saying because no no one could quite twig how Churchill couldn't could lose couldn't, could lose the 1945 general election and but the polls well, were showing consistently showing a Labour lead. But anyway, since 1945, this is not a law, as far as I'm aware. Um, I will fact check this later on. But the general consensus has been that votes are not opened or so votes are counted on the day that the election takes place. Now, mm. that has that has begun to change somewhat over the past five years or so. So now it is accepted practice for votes to be stored at a secure location and counting will begin the next morning, for example. So when I worked as a, um, a, a vote counter... Which election? Uh, I did a few different elections. I believe this would have been... Police and crime. So th this this tells you the caliber of the election here. So obviously, <laughs> I, I did a few different elections, Michael. They were all good. Um, but the point is, with something like a police and crime commissioner election, uh, it's decided that it's not of paramount importance to pay vote staff to be up until three in the morning counting it. So it's become acceptable practice more minor votes like that, although as, as we know, police and crime commissioner is a very important job. So no it, it's, become, it's become accepted practice to sort of make sure the votes are secured on the night and then you don't open them until the next day. And then sometimes you will validate them on the night and then count them the next day. I've been talking a lot about validation. Um, all this means is that you, you open, you unseal the ballot boxes, you go through all the votes, and you isolate any ballot papers which are suspect, meaning they are deliberately spoiled, there's no clear intention, and then you'll get two piles, one of which will be votes that definitely can't be counted, then you'll have another pile of votes which are a little bit iffy. And at that point, a higher-up election official will come along and go through them. At this point, they can ask for advice from... So this is what I was talking about in the context of um, Lord Morton earlier. They can ask for, for advice from party officials there. So they'll show it to the Labour volunteer, the Conservative volunteer, the, any, any political volunteers there. And in an ideal world, they will nod and say, like, yes, that's a clear intention on that ballot paper. But they don't have to do that. That is entirely their prerogative, whether they 
offer any kind of suggestion and their say is final on whether a vote can be um, can be counted or not so once you whittle that down to one pile with so you you whittle away the votes that can't be counted and then you go through the pile of maybes and divide those into yes clear preference to no we can't make a call on whether that's a clear preference you make sure all the votes are validated and then you can either count them after that they're normally packed into um, piles of 100 for counting or you can reseal them and do that the next morning so that that's but we are so, getting yeah. away from uh, Merton no, no. a little bit here, but it's it's good information. It's very interesting procedure. Okay, well let's let's get back on um, on track slightly after our discussion of. And I definitely think we should do a 1945 general election recap at some well, point. Yes, it's, it's it's important. Yes, the the 1945 election recap where we get our guest Will Romer Ormiston to tell us whether he thinks that. This upstart Clement Attlee can win, or whether Winston Churchill Britain will win. Britain is doomed by socialism. Hopefully no one will audio clip that and take it out of context. Uh, but back to Merton. Um, on the night, um, it gets to about 1.30. Unfortunately, Alex has to head off. Um, but at that point, at point... But that's a story for another day. At that point, it became pretty clear that... The assumptions that Alex and I had made in the weeks preceding the election were holding up because all of the county agents pretty much surrounding uh, a few marginal wards in Wimbledon, which weren't marginal, but certainly had been on the night. The South Wimbledon wards had become the focus and Lower Morden had become the focus. At this point, it looked very likely that Labour would be returning at, at a minimum of 27 councillors, we needed 29 for a majority. So we needed to find a path to a majority. And that path was through either the South Wimbledon wards or the or Lower Morden. If we won two out of three seats in Lower Morden, then we had a majority of, of one and we would hold the council. But everything was going down to the wire, as we said. And keep in mind, it... It was about 1.30 and results had started to come in from around the country at this point. Unfortunately, Alex had to head off. But after Alex left, I sort of spent some time hanging around the big television screen we had. And it was becoming apparent that it was going to be a bad night for the Tories, a good night for the Lib Dems, a good night for the Greens. And as the story went on, it wasn't to start with, but as it went on, it became clear it was going to be a very good night for Labour as well as we picked up councils like Wandsworth and Barnet, which we talked about in the previous podcast, we picked up Westminster, which I was not expecting. So that was a huge shock. But also we won Southampton, which was a big win, and Cumbria. Um, Cumberland, uh, apologies. Um, and it was just... It was like we were winning in the blue wall, we were winning in the red wall, we were winning in London. It became clear that everyone but the Tories was having a good night. And yet in Merton, it was going down to the wire. I twigged on very quickly to just how bad a night the Tories were going to have in Merton when one of the safest Tory wards in Merton returned a Lib Dem 
with the highest vote share. Um, so a previously safe Tory ward returned one out of two Liberal Democrat candidates. And the Liberal Democrats throughout the night proceeded to wipe out uh, the Tories in Merton. They reduced them from 17 to 7 councillors, with the Lib Dems increasing their count from 6 councillors to 17. Um, the Lib Dems more than doubled their total number, and the Tories more than halved theirs. It was it was, it a, was a brutal night. Yeah, yeah, it was. And the blue for Labour... Ran- on the floor of the leisure centre <laughs> and for, for Labour it was sort of it was like we sort of contemplated a, a different future because it was clear that we weren't going to be fighting the Tories in opposition anymore we were going to be fighting the Lib Dems um, which meant things were going to need to be restructured um, going forward um, and we were all focused on South Wimbledon and Lower Morden and would we retain our majority and how big would that majority be? The Wimbledon results came in. Uh, Labour won two out of 27 councillors in Wimbledon. So we hit the magic number of 29. We had a majority. And then it was announced Lower Morden was going to a recount. Dun, dun, dun. The, the, results, the results for Ward started being announced about 2am... Um, I got my result at 5am I was one of the last wards to be declared so I was there as the sun came up <laughs> I was on stage along with my ward colleagues um, just we were very happy we'd won it had been a very long night but yeah just smiles in our eyes big hugs all around uh, and then it was announced that Lower Morden was going for a second recount and it was like da, da, da. Jesus Christ uh, this is Intense. And then finally, they announced a third recount and they said, we're sending everyone home. The people involved will return here tomorrow at 2pm for a third recount. And I was, I was wowed. I did not expect it to go down to the wire like that. Um, And in the end, uh, Lower Morden returned two Labour councillors and one Conservative councillor. Because although the Labour vote share held up and actually, I think, slightly increased compared to 2018 in Lower Morden. Um, the Conservative vote share increased compared to 2018. Uh, we, we've had discussions about what what happened. Um, I do believe that ULES was a big factor. It was one of the main factors on the Tories' um, paraphernalia that they put out in Lower Morden was all about ULES and Sadiq Khan. And that may have swung enough undecided to vote behind the Tories to split the ward but we nearly had a clean slate of 30 out of 30 councillors in Mitcham for Morden alas it ended up as 29 and so Labour's final number was 31 so you needed 29 for a majority we have a majority of three and that was the night there you go right so very quick run through of the rest of the evening there, but most of it I spent in front of a television screen watching the results come in with other councillors and MPs uh, in a leisure centre. Okay, Michael, what on earth does this mean for the country? For the country or for Merton? Well, for Merton and then the country. Merton and then the country. So 
Labour have returned a majority of Merton Council. I now sit on Merton Council. Woohoo! Um, it's it's been a month since the election, yeah, so things. <laughs> Take a seat on the council, young butcher. Um, it's it's been a month, so we have some idea of where things are headed. We have uh, a new leader, Ross Garrett. Um, I've known Ross for quite a while. I'm very happy he's a leader. I think he's going to do a brilliant job. Um, the the Lib Dems have taken their place as the main opposition at Merton, and it looks like things are going to proceed as such in this sort of new new world that we all live in, where while Labour have retained the council, the Lib Dems are now the opposition. And, you know, going forward, we will have to react accordingly. You know, the we were talking about Wimbledon as an area in one of our previous podcasts and the fact that it has been very liberal conservative for a long time, remain conservatives, and it has now solidly swung behind the liberal Democrats. The, the chances are very high of them taking the constituency at the next general election. That is their main focus. The, the Lib Dems number one target seat in the whole country is Wimbledon. And if the local council elections are anything to go by, they will win it. Um, but for, for Labour, we, we would like to see, we would like to win back Lower Morden Man. <laughs> we sort of, uh, sort of made our own sort of joke about how in elections they refer to Mondeo Man, Workington Man. Here in Merton, we have Lower Morden Man. Waitrose Man. <laughs> exactly, and that's that's what we need to we need to win back Lower Morden Man, um, and it would be nice to make some progress back in in Wimbledon again. Um, because whilst we do have a majority, obviously we would have liked it to have been bigger. But, you know, now it's about delivering for the people of Merton going forward. And it's about proving why they should stick with Labour. Because it's a big achievement. This is a, a fourth term win here in Merton. Um, in 2010, we were a minority administration. And in 2014, 2018 and 2022, Labour have been returning Merton with majorities every single time. And we should be very... I, I take pride in the fact that the voters have put their trust in us that, that many times. And now we need to deliver on that trust. And I think Ross and his new team are going to do brilliantly at that. For a great and glorious future. <laughs> Here's hoping. Sunny, bright uplands. That's what we like to see. Um, now the country, I suppose. Yeah, so it's the country as a whole. Um, oh. Um, yes, Starmer is not performing particularly well in the polls. It depends what polls you're looking at, I think. Uh, it's, the opinion polls... So on the, on the night of the election, if this had been a, a general election... The result said that Labour would be on 35%, the Tories on 29%, and the Lib Dems on 19%. It starts to look suspiciously like a reverse um, 2010. And that's kind of what the opinion polls are saying at the moment. It was a, The average lead for Labour in the opinion polls at the moment is 6%. I believe it's gone up ever so slightly since the no-confidence vote in Boris Johnson. It's a 7% lead. Uh, but some analysis has pretty much said, if there was a, a general election tomorrow, there, there's pretty much no doubt it would be a hung parliament. 
Labour would likely be the the largest party, just. Uh, I think Ben Walker, a fellow Labour councillor and the co-founder of Britain Elects, who writes in the New Statesman, said it correctly when he said, Labour are just about doing enough to be the largest party in a home parliament. They're not wowing anyone, but the Tories have pretty much destroyed their credibility so much that to a place that Labour now look like a safe pair of hands, enough that while they aren't winning outright, they are leading in the polls. There are there have been people raising concerns about Keir Starmer and his performance, but I think the real the real thing is Keir Starmer doesn't repulse voters in the way that Ed Miliband and Jeremy Corbyn did. Um, Keir Starmer is just seen as a a safe pair of hands, and in the in this country we sort of flip between eccentric and boring prime ministers. You know, um, John Major boring, Tony Blair eccentric, Gordon Brown boring, David Cameron a little bit eccentric, Theresa May boring, Boris Johnson eccentric. So would you for a would you for a nice bit of competent and boring, which I think is 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 what Keir Starmer is. Um, well, I'm just going to challenge you on that slightly because. From what is coming up at the moment, it doesn't seem like Keir Starmer is particularly resonating with the electorate. And I think I think you're right. I think he's done enough to edge himself, hopefully, over the line. But I don't think there's a great deal of public confidence in him as a prime minister. That would be okay. my take on let, let me sort of let me sort of counter that a little bit. I mean, we spoke in, I believe it was the last episode we did, it has been a month, where we sort of referred to referred to Kia as the sort of Kellogg's cornflakes of of uh, Labour leaders. You know, he's fine, he'll do. You know, he is he is smart, he is sensible, he is competent. He may not be the most charismatic man in the world, but when you look at Labour's last two leaders, Jeremy Corbyn and Ed Miliband. They had terrible approval ratings. They were far into negative ratings. Um, and I think the key difference is Ed Miliband and Jeremy Corbyn. I don't mean this to any offence as them as individuals, just in terms of how they performed with the electorate in approval ratings, were dire. Uh, they were a drain on the Labour brand. Like, Whereas Keir Starmer is not a drain on the Labour brand. He's... He's the first leader we've had since. See, this might just be my opinion. I consider the fact that we don't have a leader who's unpopular a mere asset. Now, now Keir Starr is not winning Tory voters in droves like Tony Blair did. But the difference between Keir and Jeremy Corbyn, for example, is no matter how distressed Tory voters became with the Tory Tory party, they would never vote for Corbyn. Whereas Tory voters now are actually taking swing voters, marginal voters are taking a look at Labour and they go, they're not scared of Keir Starmer in the way they were scared of an Ed Miliband premiership or a Jeremy Corbyn premiership. They look at Keir Starmer and think he could do the job. And if I am terrify if i am upset with the conservative party then perhaps i could see myself voting for labor maybe voting for labor or possibly voting lib dem for example without a fear of a premier premiership of someone like corbyn or miliband Keir, I, I want to point out that kia's net approval ratings are negative free 
Okay, so he, he doesn't yeah. have positive approval ratings. Very few politicians have positive approval ratings. I mean, to put that in context, by the 2019 general election, Jeremy Corbyn's approval ratings and Ed Miliband and Ed Miliband's approval ratings in 2015 were like minus 40, minus 50. He was minus three. Boris Johnson's current approval ratings are about minus 27, which for a sitting prime minister is usually curtains. So I'm not... I'm not worried about about Kia's performance at the moment. I I want him I want him to improve. I want him to find some more charisma, some more drive. But in terms of being worried about about the next election right now, the polls show that Kia is doing an okay job, if not a great job. And do you, that, do you, I'll, I'll, I'll take that. Do, do do you think he's enthusing the Labour base? I do not. That is my I, point. Oh, no, I, what I will say is I think the, I think Boris Johnson is enthusing the Labour base. And Keir Starmer is compelling enough for swing voters. Or Keir Starmer is a safe enough option for swing voters to swing towards Labour. Which swing voters did not feel that Miliband and Corbyn were safe options. So if anything, okay, maybe Keir is not enthusing the Labour base to come out and vote, but the actions of the Conservative Party most definitely are enthusing the Labour base to come out and vote against them. And I was having this conversation with a friend the other day, and I said, Keir Starmer is playing the Joe Biden playbook. He is is playing it safe, sensible. Um, He may not be the most exciting option, but he is safe and sensible enough to convince swing voters to rally behind him and banking on the fact that the Tory party are so detestable to the Labour base that they will come out in droves to vote. It may be a risky strategy, but we did see it pay off over the pond in America in the 2020 presidential election. Yes, there is that. But once you get into power and you don't have the nasty Conservatives to blame anymore, you have to stand on your own two feet. And that is what Joe Biden is not doing. He yeah, he is have... currently struggling. I'm not. I I've had these I've had these thoughts in my head during during for the uh, last few days, and I'm sure we can discuss them. Sure, but, but let's okay. focus if, on if, the local election result. So I would. Just... Okay, well, you if, go if, ahead. If, ask me one more. Go on, ask me one more. Well, no, I'm 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 gonna I'm gonna jump myself here because if if we get Prime Minister Keir Starmer, he's really gonna have to find his voice because you can scrape over the line being the sensible candidate but unless you can forge your own identity in power you can't afford to define yourself negatively you can't afford to define yourself by what you're not you can't keep Mm -hmm. on saying i'm not donald trump or i'm not boris johnson you have to have a definitive program of action and i'm concerned that kia is sort of betting ever or is, is putting all of his energy into winning power but is not especially sure of what he's going to do with it exactly yeah now obviously at the last conference Kia gave a very very long speech which I think contained some parts of it that I was definitely on board with where he outlined 
his policies for the future. But a lot of that speech was still about how he is not like Boris Johnson. And it was designed, it was crafted in a way to present him as the sort of upstanding, hardworking, honest person that Boris Johnson isn't. And Boris Johnson isn't going to be around forever. At some point, Keir is going to have to that is the develop more, more of an identity that doesn't just present him as the mirror image of his rival and yeah. give, gives the public something that they want. Because Keir, Keir has a very, very broad constituency, or had at least a very broad constitu- constituency of supporters So that he, he pitched to. So we both pitched... voted for him. We should say in the in the twenty twenty Labour leadership. We, we did, we yes. And I, 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 and I and I do not deny this, but equally, I have been somewhat disenchanted by him since then. But Keir pitched himself to sort of former Corbyn supporters as someone who would maintain the kind of Corbynism dem- without Corbyn. <laughs> yeah. So he presents himself as someone who would maintain the social democratic. Um, tradition he would he, he calls himself a socialist he would continue to support um kind of push towards public ownership um support the nhs sort of railway um nationalization all that kind of thing there, there, there were a lot corbyn without corbyn then he presented himself to as sort of heir to blair to the other side of <laughs> the party all things and then, to all people and then he's presenting himself to conservative voters as I'm a boring technocratic administrator. Like you can vote for me this one time to kick out the bad man you don't like. Hmm. And you can't, you can't please all of those people at the same time. And you have to really work out what's popular, what the public wants and which one of those groups is going to, keep you in power. And it's not the Conservatives who see you as the respectable option, because they will be happy when they get rid of Boris Johnson. This um, is true. The real question is, is, is if it, Boris it is, Johnson it goes... Finding, it, it is finding a platform that will have a broad appeal across the Labour Party, and he needs to just develop more of an identity, and yeah. because... You that's can't. that's the question, yeah. Alex. Is if if Boris Johnson goes, what is Keir left with? He is he has defined himself by being the opposite of Boris Johnson. And say the Tories were to get in someone like Jeremy Hunt, who's a bit boring, but seen as generally sensible and competent, then Keir, yeah, then Keir so- has what what policy platform can he fall back on? You know, there, he, there isn't one at the moment. He loses that constituency. Yeah. And I think it's a fair question and one we can definitely discuss going forward. Um, let's, shall we, shall we move back to the local elections and just rush through the results very quickly? Uh, yeah, let's, let's do a, a rush to the results and then I think probably call it an end for this evening. And Yes, that sounds like a good plan because... We will do another podcast where I talk about what being a councillor is actually like and what's yeah, happening I, I, in national think, politics. So I think um, next, we've episode, got a... next episode we'll have a little bit more perspective on what Michael is actually doing day to day as a councillor. 
Mm. And we'll talk a bit more about the national politics situation because there's just been a big no confidence vote in Boris Johnson, which he survived, but quite wounded. And we definitely want to talk about that at some point. But as we are focusing on the results, we are a current affairs podcast. We will cover the we will cover everything three weeks later than (laughs) quite right. So the local elections, um, let's go London. Um, Labour got their second best ever number of seats in London. However, they ended up with exactly the the same number of councils as before. Um, They gained Westminster, Barnet and uh, Wandsworth. They lost, um, I believe it was, was it Harrow? Harrow Council they lost? I believe so, yep. Harrow Council, it was Harrow or Hounslow. One of them will never be anything other than Labour, it seems like. Um, Harrow Council is Conservative, yeah. They lost Harrow, they lost Tower Hamlets to Lutver Rahman. The... We can talk about him another day. Uh, do we have to? Um, yes, he and... is. A very, very interesting man. Which is the nicest way of putting it. In, in, in um, a very, very, very generous way of describing him. Um, and they they lost Croydon. Though I should note they remained the largest party in Croydon, despite some expectations. Though they did lose the Croydon mayoralty by 600 votes. Um, so Labour won some amazing councils, which they've never won before, but they did lose an equal number of councils. So they end up with 21. The Tories lost two councils in London. And that was overall... And that was that was pretty much it. Um, in London, the the Tories further fell in London and the Labour further rose in London. Um, the, the Red Wall... Let's go up north a bit. Um... Because Labour and the Lib Dems and the Greens all did quite well in the South at the Tories' expense. Now, in in England overall, Labour Labour did had something of about a six to an eight point swing to them in England overall. But in the Red Wall, that swing was less big. It was less pronounced. It was more like a three to four percent swing, which. It's probably good enough to win back a, a good chunk of the red wall seats that Labour lost in 2019, but not convincingly, which means there's definitely more work to be done in this new marginal area of the North where the next election will probably be decided. Want to come in on that, Alex? Uh, well, I, I'm only to agree with you, I think, that, uh, yeah, more more work needs to be done it's a promising start Hmm. but the red wall is not showing any signs of a landslide yet no it 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 does seem it would swing back based more on dissatisfaction with the conservatives than with enthusiasm for labor which is the sum of what we've been talking about for the last 20 minutes i think (laughs) yes um and finally scotland and wales do you want to pick what we go first on alex uh, should we do Wales first? Wales, um, Drakeford crushed it, pretty much, as we as Seski would do. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Are we happy with that? 
think we're, we're, we're happy with uh, happy after, with that announcement. After a rather dismal dismal performance for Labour in the 2017 Welsh local elections, they did far, far better this time. And are back to a good, good pegging in Wales. And finally, Scotland, where the SNP vote continued to rise, but Labour have managed Labour to recapture second place. Yeah, the, the Conservatives did not do well. Uh, Douglas Ross is an incredibly uncharismatic man who has sort of pissed away a... I'm not... There's nothing approaching a lead, but he... The, the, the Scottish Conservative Party really rebuilt itself as a under Ruth somewhat, Davidson. somewhat viable force under Ruth Davidson, and Douglas Ross has just pissed it all away. Pissed it all away, yes. Um, and Anisawa, who is actually con- the most liked leader in Scotland at the moment, though the Scottish Labour brand is still incredibly damaged, the, Sawa the... has made progress. Well, Scottish Labour has had a bunch of interesting leaders over the past few years, and I think Sarwar is somewhat charismatic. He's not corrupt. Uh, he has a reasonable amount of integrity, which makes him about a thousand times better than any previous Scottish Labour leader for about 15 years. No so, comment. Um, but yeah, it, it, it does look like, I, I, I read an analysis where they pretty much said in, in Scotland, Labour are now back in second place and Sarwar's will challenge going forward is actually challenging the SNP because I think the SNP ended up with something like 44% of the vote and Scottish Labour got just over half that on about 23% of the vote. So there's still some way for Scottish Labour to go if they want to start re-challenging the SNP again. But it's a start. Yeah. Uh, very briefly, Northern Ireland. Um, so we're still planning our Northern Ireland episode about the Assembly. special. But as expected, Sinn Féin was able to achieve a majority of seats. So the first time a nationalist party has ever done this in, well... In, in both the Parliament of Northern Ireland and the post-Good Friday Agreement Northern Irish Assembly. So this is a very, very historic first. The DUP failed to convince the electorate this was a plebiscite on the union. It was not able to kind of galvanise the unionist vote to come out and vote DUP because they were the champions of the union. I think, although it was an election that was fought on... The border question. It was also an election that was fought on local issues, and the DUP had not been delivering. And there is some evidence to suggest that while their voters didn't necessarily switch to nationalist parties, people did stay at home and they were not riled up enough to come out and support the DUP. They did not fear the threat of Sinn Féin enough to back the DUP. Exactly. And although this is a very historic event, it will... In practice... In practice... Well, it's it's one of those events that everything has changed and and nothing has changed. Yeah, it's, it's, it's hugely symbolic, 
but not much more than that. So what I think this, this, this is one of those situations where only time will tell how this, what significance this election will have. And um, we will explore that all in the Northern Ireland special. The um, DUP so... have, have a choice here whether they're going to try and build a positive alternative to Sinn Féin or whether they are going to double down. Trying to double down. I suspect they will start to double down. but I expect the same. They will, <laughs> and they will... It, this this is going to be a case of um, damn unionists, they ruin unionism. They're going to start trying to hack away at the Ulster Unionist Party to pick up their vote. Oh, wow. Civil war. Yeah, We know how and, that uh, feels, being members of the Labour Party. Every, everyone's favourite um, British politician, Jim Allister, was elected. Mm. Yay. Traditional unionist voice. And I think on that but note, as we're approaching, fast approaching... The DUP fast. are not running enough. Yes, fast, <laughs> approach, fast approaching our longest episode ever, so we should probably wrap it up. But yeah, just to sort of summarise, uh, Labour made gains in the local elections and they've they're got about a consistent seven-point lead in the polls at the moment, which would probably, the local elections, the polls justify that it would be a hung parliament. Labour would probably be the largest party in a hung parliament. But this is largely down to Conservative voters very upset with the Conservative Party at the moment. Not necessarily not necessarily huge enthusiasm for Keir Starmer or Labour. And as we know with British politics, things can change very quickly. As Harold Wilson said, a week is a long time in politics. But the Conservative Party looks set to continue to implode. So let's see what happens. Indeed. And that's your local election wrap-up from Michael and Alex. We live in interesting times. Good night, ladies and gentlemen. Remember, things can only get banter! banter. Oh.